Welcome to you all around the world. It is Friday, the 6th of March. This is the latest Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker. If you find yourself in a knife fight, like some Australians recently have done, in a knife fight over toilet paper, you know you have a uniquely first world problem. So today we are going to talk about coronavirus and the very recent Marmot report in the news. We are going to have a look at some new research in the BMJ about salt intake and blood pressure, eggs, cholesterol and cardiovascular disease, and a paper in the BJGP about rapid cancer diagnosis in patients with vague symptoms. In our in-depth section, we are going to have a look at why investigation results may not always be what you think they are. And then, of course, we'll finish up with some of the cutting-edge technology in medicine today. So the supermarkets have been cleared out of toilet paper. You can find people bartering their last bag of pasta for some bog roll in the streets. Yes, coronavirus fear has finally hit. I feel like the French might be feeling pretty smug at the moment. Of course, they've got they've got plenty of cases of coronavirus going around the country at the moment, but they also have B-Days. We don't need toilet paper. We have a wash basin on the floor for your bum. Now, finally, you will understand. Apologies for the accent, but it turns out the French have been playing the long game all along, and this is part of their pandemic preparation. In a bizarre coincidence, it's also part of my pandemic preparation. So I think I might be in the only practice in the UK that has a B-Day in a patient bathroom. So just across the corridor from me where I work, I have these facilities. If I need to self-isolate, I'm going to stay at work. I'm going to get delivery for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And I'm not going to worry about toilet paper one little bit. So on to the news. And of course, we have to have a coronavirus update. And this is the time where we find ourselves at the tipping point. So there are some circulating cases that we don't know where people have picked them up from. It implies that there's low level circulation of coronavirus amongst the general population. Inevitably, this is going to increase. As of yesterday, we've had 115 cases in the UK. There's no doubt that we're going to start seeing more. It's been suggested that maybe up to 80% of the population will get coronavirus, that 50% will be infected over the course of three weeks and 90% of those over the course of nine weeks. So it's going to happen quite fast when it happens, but we just don't know when that escalation will be. Of course, this week we've had NHS England publish the standard operating procedures in primary care document, so 21-page document giving us an idea about what we should be doing in primary care when things do really hit the fan. I thought one interesting bit in the document was where they suggested for patients on arrival, reception should be asking them four questions. So have you been to any of the following category one areas in the last 14 days? Have you traveled to any of the following category two areas in the last 14 days and you have a cough, high temperature or shortness of breath? Have you been in close contact with anyone with a confirmed coronavirus? And have you been asked to self-isolate? And 
as you can see, this is going to be hugely time consuming. If reception have to ask this to every single patient, it's just not going to be feasible. I can imagine a situation where you might just get a, a gaggle of patients in the reception area and then ask them all en masse. The downside being that most people will go, no, 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 no. And then one person will sheepishly put their hand up and everyone will start groaning. There was an interesting Lancet editorial that published just today, and that was talking about the response to coronavirus in China. Now, of course, in China, the rates of infection have been the highest around the world. The death rates have unfortunately been the highest around the world as well. But the number of uh, new cases is actually on the decline now. So the population have been in extreme lockdown. They've been enduring uh, what we might feel were quite draconian measures. However, it does seem to have worked. And actually, the editorial praises the government in China for protecting a huge number of their population and preventing a large number of deaths. I can't see this happening in uh, Europe. I can't see this mass lockdown. I don't think the population would allow it. There's obviously concerns about the economy as well. China's taken a big hit on the economy to actually apply these measures. But perhaps that's what it takes if you really want to control a pandemic. As ever, there's no right or wrong answer. There's no simple solution. And it's interesting in one of the other editorials I've reading, I think this was in the BMJ, they were saying that scientists and medics can do the research, they can try and provide information on what's happening with the disease. But ultimately, some decisions have to end up being taken by politicians. While there has been a lot of concern about coronavirus, a very important piece of news went somewhat under the radar. And this was the second Marmot report. So first published in 2010, Sir Michael Marmot uh, with his team had reviewed the status of the UK's health and made a number of recommendations as how this could be improved. And the damning indictment from the follow-up report 10 years later is that 10 years of austerity has taken a heavy toll on the population. Michael Marmot has actually produced a very impassioned article in the BMJ last week. And as it said, now in parts of England, particularly among women in deprived communities and the North, life expectancy has fallen and the years people spend in poor health might even be increasing, which is a shocking development. We were used to health improving year on year. And now that's clearly changed. And as bad as health is in England, the damage to the health of people in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland has been worse. And this is no surprise. We're seeing increasing inequality. And this is, of course, what's driven a lot of this national upset. This is all linked with desire for Brexit, disillusionment in government. And even though austerity has now been officially cancelled, it doesn't necessarily seem to translate that things are going to get better. So we're still seeing huge problems in schools. Social care is still dramatically underfunded. We're still really struggling in uh, in healthcare. And of course, there's been extra money that's been pumped into health care now. But of course, we can't do all of this by ourselves. Biggest driver here are a number of social determinants. And whilst it's good that people have got free access to healthcare, this is only one small part of what needs to change for people's lives to improve. We can only hope that governments pay attention to this report, that they act on it in a way that they have failed to act 10 years ago. And of course, we need to hold them to account if they don't. 
now onto the research and we're going to have a look at a couple of BMJ papers, both which have a nutritional theme. So the first is a systematic review and meta-analysis of dietary sodium intake and the effects that that has on blood pressure. So we've had some data on this before. I know we've presented on the course a few years ago. It doesn't seem to be rocket science that if you have lower sodium intake in your diet that your blood pressure is likely to go down. And that was the finding of this systematic review. So they had 133 randomised trials, 12,000 participants. They measure the level of sodium that was excreted in the urine. And this appears to be a preferred method of testing sodium because it's a bit more easy to quantify what's coming out because you know that's going to be equivalent to what's going in in general versus just trying to work out what the grams of salt being ingested were from the food. It's a more accurate way for researchers to do this, but it does make it slightly harder for us to interpret. So they looked at urinary sodium excretion and then they looked at systolic and diastolic blood pressures. They found that if you could reduce your sodium as they did on average in these trials by 130 millimoles, and that's probably equivalent to around seven grams of salt in the diet, then you had roughly a four millimetre of mercury reduction in your systolic and two millimetres of mercury reduction in your diastolic blood pressure. Perhaps the new information that this study provides is that there is greater benefit by doing this in the longer term. So a lot of the trials they looked at were quite short term, so under 14 days, and that tends to underestimate the benefits of lowering salt on a more persistent basis. And so they found that in those trials over 14 days, then there was a good dose response relation. Uh, They found greater responses for older populations, non-white populations, and those with higher blood pressures. So there's lots of reasons why we should be selling up on reducing salt. Now, the second paper was looking at egg consumption and the effect that that may have on cardiovascular disease. And the link here is, of course, that eggs are known to be a source of high cholesterol. And of course, high cholesterol has been linked to greater numbers of cardiovascular events. So the question has often been whether the type of cholesterol that eggs contain is a good cholesterol or a bad cholesterol. And we've seen this flip-flopping in the media for years and years and years as various observational data has been published. So this study was a very large study conducted over 32 years with over 200,000 participants of whom 14,000 had a cardiovascular event during the course of that trial. Without going into too many of the specifics, the conclusion was that moderate egg consumption, which is defined as up to one egg per day, is not associated with cardiovascular disease risk overall and is associated with a potentially lower cardiovascular disease risk in Asian populations. Before you start having a three-egg omelette for breakfast every day, the linked editorial highlights some of the uncertainties that remain. So they do say these results are convincingly null. However, there has been other recent data that has shown that higher egg consumption is linked to higher levels of LDL in the blood. And of course, we know that LDL or high levels of LDL is a causal factor for cardiovascular disease. And um, in their own words, and I think they must have been pretty pleased with this sentence, this certainly scrambles the evidence space a little and adds noise to the discussion. It goes on further just to highlight the the difficulties about getting good nutritional research 
separating out single food sources from people's diets and whether they have a genuine effect is very, very hard and uh, really suggests that actually we need to question how much relevance single food studies genuinely have, given that the relationship between food and our bodies is so complex. Then the last piece of research was a paper that published in the BJGP that just popped through my letterbox a few days ago. This was a cost effectiveness analysis of a pilot rapid diagnosis centre. So these rapid diagnosis centres are popping up around the UK now. They are this tool whereby GPs can refer in patients who have vague or non-specific symptoms, but we're clinically suspicious about cancer and there's not another obvious referral pathway to um, send them down. So that's a, a renaming of multidisciplinary diagnostic centres. They're now terming them RDCs. The data underpinning these is quite positive. There was a lot of research that was done in Denmark over the last 10 years where these have been running that shows the pickup rates are surprisingly high. They are successfully identifying those patients who would otherwise be falling through the cracks of our cancer referral systems. Indeed, we're likely to see much more of these types of clinics because the suggestion, at least in England, that all two-week wait cancer referrals will go through one of these centres rather than their own individual pathways. So it's a good thing that this paper found a very positive outcomes in terms of cost effectiveness. So people who are referred into these RDCs, the mean time to diagnosis dropped from a, a huge 84 days in usual care down to six days if a diagnosis was made there and then at the clinic or down to 40 days if they had to go and have further investigations after the clinic. But either way, that's a dramatic reduction in the lead time to getting a, a cancer diagnosis. The caveat is that for these clinics to be cost effective, they've got to be run at over 80% capacity. So if we've got them, we've got to use them. Although I can't see there's any, any shortage of patients that we're concerned about that may be used to fill them. Now onto our in-depth section. And it may only be March, but I think this might be my paper of the year. So this was another great paper in the BMJ, and this was looking at imprecision in medical measurements. And I think this has been something on our radars, but it's very, very difficult to think about this in day-to-day -day practice. Patients like having something concrete. Our brains, human nature likes having something concrete that we can work off of. And so it's easier to put this to one side, but the paper explains why that may be a mistake. So I'll give you an example. So Mrs. Bloggs comes in. She uh, has had a recent hemoglobin test that's come back as 120. And we've said, that's fine. You are not anemic. Things are looking good. Then she has another hemoglobin test and her hemoglobin has gone down to 114. So um, she hears that result and she said, it's going down, doctor. Should I be worried? And she's getting anxious. We're getting a little bit anxious. Now we're thinking, well, that result shows that she's in anemic territory. Should we be doing more investigations? There's a strong chance we could embark on an cascade of further studies and tests for her. But actually, we cannot say with any confidence that those two results are not entirely identical. So to quote the paper, 
inherent to every medical measurement is a degree of uncertainty. You must have a rough idea of the magnitude of that uncertainty to correctly interpret any reported measurement. And what's fascinating is they provide a table which shows the amount of variation you may expect to see in a single test and the minimum change that's required between two tests to be confident that is a genuine change. So there are three different types of variation that may be introduced into a test. So the first is the pre-analytical stage. So this may be in the way that a specimen is collected or handled or shipped or stored. And the perfect example of this is potassiums. So almost everyone in the summer seems to have a low potassium. And while some of this may be inherent to the patient, actually a lot of it, it turns out, is due to the changes in the blood, the changes of potassium levels within the tube due to heat and the time that it takes for it to get to the lab. Secondly, there is analytical variation, and this is the difference as a result of the actual machines that are doing the test and the accuracy of those machines. And then thirdly, we have biological variation, which is often the most important. So this can be influenced by a huge range of determinants. So it could be our physiology, it could be our diet, the level of exercise we've been doing, whether the weather is hot or cold, how stressed we are. There's a lot of things that can affect what goes into that test tube. And the amount of variation that we see depends on the thing that we are measuring. So sodium, very tightly controlled, some other electrolytes, um, much less so such as magnesium. And in the BMJ paper, they've got around 40 different tests that they give an idea about the level of variation that we might see between different measurements of the same test. To give you a few examples, so the analytical and biological variations combined for sodium would be less than 2%, so that's very low. For haemoglobin, it's 6 to 10%. For most of the liver function tests, it's uh, 11 to 20%, with the exception of uh, bilirubin, which is almost 40%. So there's a huge amount of variation that we might see when we're doing these measurements. They then provide us with the reference change of value. Now, this is the figure, percentage figure that we're looking for in change between two of the same test to help us work out whether we're seeing a genuine real change or it's simply due to random variation. So it gives a few examples in the paper which are highly relevant to us in day-to-day general practice. For example, LDL, the reference change interval is 20 to 30%. You need to demonstrate greater change than 30% to be confident that anything's actually happened with their LDL level at all if you start to treat it. So give them a statin and you're likely to see about a third or more reduction in that statin. So you're probably going to be beyond that reference change interval and you can probably say, yeah, I've done a good job here. However, if you then potentiate the statin, we know that you get ever decreasing benefits. So double the statin further, you're probably only likely to see an extra 10% of change in that LDL. And of course, that's much lower than the reference change interval. So it's going to be very hard to be confident that actually you've made any difference at all with that higher dose. 
bisphosphonate. So you would expect over a two to three year period to have a three to five percent increase in bone mineral density. But actually the reference change interval is six to ten percent. So if you check that DEXA scan again too early, then you're not going to be able to be confident that you've seen any difference, any genuine difference at all. This is why American guidelines don't recommend monitoring bone mineral density within a five-year period of initiation. And then HbA1c in diabetics, the reduction that you're likely to see in HbA1c with a single anti-glycemic agent on average is much, much lower, about half of the reference change interval. So it's very hard to be confident that when we provide a treatment, it's making any meaningful difference at all. Now, the paper does point out that you can improve that reference change interval if you do multiple measurements. So, for example, if you can do four measurements initially for the test, then you do your intervention, then you follow up with a further four tests, you can halve that reference change interval. But of course, we all know that in day to day practice, that's not going to be possible. Um, It's a lot of resources. Patients don't want to have lots of blood tests. So we're kind of stuck with what we've got. The whole paper certainly is a head scratcher, but I think it really does hammer home that medicine is not an exact science. There certainly is an element to art about it. We really need to consider the clinical context when we're looking at blood test results. And if you do want a bit more information on this, go on the BMJ website. They've produced an interactive infographic of the variation you're likely to see and the reference change interval for all the tests that they've put in the paper. And it's a really, really interesting and useful tool. It's free. You don't have to log in or be a BMA member to get access to it. And while it may mess with your head a little bit, it might also just provide a bit of reassurance when we have those borderline results that we're wondering, should I be doing anything about this or not? Pop it into that calculator and you might find we need to worry about le- worry about it less than we think. Finally, future medicine. And this was an interesting report. There are teams around the world now who are performing functional MRIs on patients in persistent vegetative states, and they are actually able to communicate with some of these patients. So pop someone in a functional MRI scan and ask them to imagine kicking a ball and the parts of their brain involved with movement around kicking a ball light up. And so in this way, you can find out from control subjects which areas of the brain should be active when you ask certain questions. And so they've successfully managed to communicate with a number of patients in comas using this method. The good news for these patients beyond being able to communicate in some form is that the ability to communicate is also associated with a greater chance of improvement of their vegetative state. So this is still in its infancy, but it could be very, very important in allowing those patients to make decisions about their ongoing care. So that's it for today. Thank you for joining us once again on the Hot Topics podcast. We'll be back in two weeks time with the latest news, research and more in-depth articles relevant to us in primary care. Don't forget to find us on at GP Hot Topics on Twitter, at Dr. Neil Tucker as well. You can email me on neil, N-E-A-L, at mbmedical.com. Do let us know what you think of the podcast. Do send in your suggestions about topics you might like us to cover in more detail. 
And who knows what the hell will be happening the next time I talk to you. So for now, take care. Bye-bye.